mission statements for any organization should describe the core values of that place. Um, They are good and valuable as long as they are biblical. A church mission statement is a reminder to us about what our purpose is. They help keep us focused. There are two foundational passages I want to read at the very beginning to set the base for everything. The first is from Matthew 28, where Jesus is giving the Great Commission before he ascends into heaven. And the second is the Apostle Paul giving a picture of the apostolic ministry, which the church should be about timelessly. So please hear as I read these two passages. This is God's holy and inspired word, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, please give us focus this morning as we consider the calling that you have placed on your church, and in particular this church called Redeemer. Father, we desire to obey your word, but we are completely unable to do so apart from the gracious ministry of your Holy Spirit. Please give us aid by your Spirit to love you and to obey you. I pray for your encouragement to be showered upon your people this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm going to use a little illustration to begin with, and I've been preaching long enough to know that it's dangerous because it sets up this expectation that my sermon probably won't meet. However, about eight days ago was the anniversary of my greatest sports memory ever. It was the year of 1980 when the U.S. hockey team won the, well, the, the game in particular is when they beat the Soviets on February 22nd, 1980, but who's keeping track of the exact date? And I could tell you, I grew up in a a hockey-rich environment. I played hockey as a youngster. And I even knew people older than me that had connections to players on the team. And that's not to say it's uh, something that should be famous. These guys were nobodies. These were people who didn't get drafted by the NHL in most cases. Some of them only made the second tier of junior. They were not, they were amateurs. There were four or five guys on the 80 Olympic team that made it onto the NHL, and only a couple had real careers. Um, This was a team of amateurs. I can't tell you the disparity between them and the Soviet machine. That hockey team beat everyone in Western Europe in those days. Their players could not defect and play in the NHL until much later. Some of them did. They were near 40 in some cases and were still dominant in the NHL. That's the Soviet team that they played. 25 and 30-year-olds against 18-year-olds, a couple 20-year-olds who were in the minor leagues and not even doing that well in them. That's what was pitted against each other, and there's no comparison to this that I can find in sports like this, these two teams playing. But one of the great moments I've studied over the years as I uh, saw that game and watched it, in fact, I remember being at home, I was 11 years old, and I was watching it on TV, and my mom was at work, and all the guys who were at work that had to be at work were calling, having her call me uh, to find out what the score was. And when I told them they won 4-3, they did not believe. They said, your son doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no idea what he's talking about. But I did know what I was talking about. It was the greatest upset in the history of sports, I'm convinced. The great part of my study concerning this was the coach, Herb Brooks. Uh, As a coach myself, I've always looked for ways to inspire my team with speeches when they needed them. And he gave one of the greatest ones ever right before they played that game. They were scared. The team knew they had been destroyed by this team by 10 goals in an exhibition game two weeks prior. The team was rolling over everybody. Their goalie only let up like three goals in 30 games. There's just no reason they should be on the same ice with this team. But Herb Brooks comes into the locker room, and he said, great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight we skate with them. Tonight we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight we are the greatest hockey team in the world. Who couldn't get pumped and go out for that? Now, what I'm hoping to do is pump you up like that about our mission, right? Because we got a greater mission with a greater empowerment than that hockey team had. 
We have the mission that Christ has given us. And he promises to never leave us. And he promises when we toil, it's with his power. So I do get excited about our mission. And it's, it's got complexities to it that I can talk all month about. But there are some high points that you see noted in it that I hope you too will gather as your church. This is our church's mission. This is Christ's church, and it's based on his commission. That's what we're called to be about, what God calls us to be about. I think as we are excited about this as a church, it only makes us more effective in the witness that we seek to have um, outside these walls. Now, you'll notice the two foundational passages I begin with. I think to have a biblical mission for a church, you've got to start with Christ's Great Commission. I know churches differ in how they do it, but I know when the elders were putting this together and we were agreeing upon it, we all thought you have to have an explicit root from Jesus to say our church's mission is. It's got to be what Jesus says at a base level. Now, the particulars of how it works itself out can be contextual based on where the church is located, but the root and base of it must be biblical. It has to be what Jesus said, and it has to be manifested in what the apostles did in their response to Christ. That's why we have Matthew 28 and Colossians 1. In Matthew 28, you have this call, as we're going, we should be making disciples of the nations. And disciple means, yes, they have to be introduced to Christ and trust in Christ, but they're continually growing. They're learners. They're followers. We're cultivating discipleship. And all of that's rooted in a saving relationship with Christ. It's not doing away with the idea of evangelism, but the true Great Commission isn't just introducing Jesus. It's discipling people. And it's baptizing them into the body of Christ with the physical sign of baptism. We're to be about that activity and action. And we are teaching them to do whatever God has commanded. It's not just, again, a salvation, personal experience, and then we move on, we've done our job. No, the church's job is discipleship. It's to help people grow in Christ, to be learned ambassadors and representatives of Christ, because that in itself perpetuates more discipleship. And we are to go do this and see this happen in all nations and be involved in any way we can to see that spread even beyond where we are. And Jesus promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll always be with us in this process. Well, a few years later, after this starts to unfold, and we saw it in the book of Acts, Paul writes to the Colossians, a church he helped to found, and now it's established and growing, and he describes the ministry he has had with them as a way of showing them what apostolic ministry commissioned by Christ looks like. And so that's what Colossians 1, 28 and 29 refers to. And look at that passage and what it says. Christ we proclaim, warning, teaching with all wisdom, presenting everyone mature in Christ. It's discipleship. It's specific to the preaching and proclaiming of Christ. It's a multifaceted approach to how people grow in Christ. It's all about that proclamation more uh, concerning Jesus that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil. It's being honest about it. It's a difficult task. It's laborious. There is, there is an exertion of energy that goes into this. But the beauty of it is in the last part of verse 29, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. These two passages give us the thrust of what our church should be about by way of mission. But at the core of it, which not mentioned here, but it's the, the end all for every created thing, is to glorify God in all of this. All of this is for the purpose of the worship of the true and living God who deserves it all. So our mission is, Redeemer's mission, is to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and proclaim his gospel to the world. That's a simple statement, but I hope to unpack it a bit with you over the course of these four sermons. The four sermons are based on the four concepts, and you see that listed right on your outline. Worship, community, the Word, or the Bible, and proclamation. Worship, we are redeemed to give God the glory that He deserves. As a community, we're called as redeemed sinners. We're sinners, but we're redeemed by God's grace, and that gives us a commonality that's tighter than any other commonality we can have. Fellow sinners, but redeemed sinners. That's a community of the church, the communion of the saints. Saints because of what God has done in calling us from darkness and bringing us to light. Of course, we only know all of this because of the Word. So it all has to be based on the Bible's teaching, the Bible's revelation about all of these things. So we are studying it to the end of our days. It's our rule for our faith and for our life. 
And then finally, what comes forward from it, and you can't take any of these out, by the way. These are all essential parts. Uh, They're not exclusive on their own. They connect together. And naturally, obviously, if all these other things are true, we're going to proclaim this. It'll be proclaimed internally, regularly, so we never forget, and we're strengthened in it. But it will also go from these walls in the lives you live, the places God's put you, and by the mission of the church carried out more formally, by sending out missionaries, by working out plans to go proclaim Christ wherever we can. Worship, community, the word, and proclamation. These are the things that make up the mission of our church. I would say they make up the mission of most churches that are striving after what the scripture teaches. So these things we have in common with not just this local expression, but many other churches that seek after these things by God's grace. The first part of our mission I want to spend the rest of our time on, that's our call to worship our love to worship God. Our response is worship. Our response in particular is to our redemption. Now, our response should be rightly to worship God if we just look at nature. But unfortunately, we cannot without redemption. We can't appreciate. Our minds are dulled to the beauty of God in the creation. So we have to have his revelation. And he reaches to us in Christ, and the Bible records this. This is how we know it. And he sends his spirit to enable us. So the worship of God actually is the end all for everything else. That everybody would worship God is the desire we have. We want to see them redeemed so that they'll worship God. That's the desire. That's what God is working to his end. And here's the thing. Everyone will worship him. Even those who rebel and spend eternity receiving justice, that worships God because he's God and we are not. But praise be to God. Our worship is coming in response to our redemption. This is what people do who are redeemed, by the way. You worship God. I mean, that's just what you do. You will worship him if you have been redeemed because you know that that's what he deserves. And now your eyes open to the full glory, the full splendor of his holiness. It's not just about our redemption. It's about everything that he is over and has dominion concerning and his wonder. Everything about him puts us in a state of awe and reverence. This is what we're called to. We're called to worship. And this is what we're striving for as a church at its centerpiece. In the book of Revelation, I have the passage there on your insert. There are several passages I will refer to. But Revelation is a beautiful picture of heavenly worship. We pray all the time, Lord, may your will on earth be the same as it is in heaven. And we are given this glimpse, I believe, as the main purpose for Revelation, to see the high and lifted nature of our God and the access we have to him through Christ. But you'll notice the passage reads, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. If you study the Protestant Reformation and I asked you, what do you think the main tenet of the the Reformation would be? What was so important about it? And most of us would rightly say justification by faith alone. That's got to be the core. And I, I agree with that. But Calvin said something in a tract, a little pamphlet he wrote to try to convince other people that the church needed to be reformed. And he was talking about the Roman church. And he said something nuanced it a little bit different that I believe is, is accurate in its own right and will help us to see the importance of worship. Now remember his context. Um, there are only the Roman, church, Roman Catholic churches at that time. I wasn't part of the Eastern Church. Everything was the Roman Catholic Church. So if they had a building like this, you have to imagine if you've been to, to Rome, for instance, you'll know what I mean. It would have similar structure, but there would be statues and icons and little places that you could pray or put money to, and it is just loaded up with stuff. And it does take your breath away when you see it because of the artistry, but man's artistry is a, is a low ceiling to God's glory. And the problem with all of this, and then on top of it, the priesthood had become a bit of a celebrity show. Um, it became a power show in their ornate outfits and the things they wore and everything. In fact, the black robe was a response to all that. Uh, the Geneva gown, they call it. It's like, we want the opposite for the ministers. Really, they should have ashes on their head if it was really the way it ought to be. And I'm glad they didn't go that route. But at any rate, they have black robes. for. The, it's just brought down to a much, le- a much less ostentatious look. 
So he's writing against the backdrop of that. The gospel's starting to go out. Martin Luther's preaching the gospel of justification by faith alone uh, in the church the, in, in Germany, which was still an ornate-looking church for a long time. And so Calvin writes in 1543, some, a few years later, he writes a little tract and he says this, and the name of the tract is The Necessity of Reforming the Church. And he lists two defining elements of Christianity, which in his words constitute the whole substance of Christianity. Those two elements are a knowledge first of the right way to worship God, and secondly, of the source from which salvation ought to be sought. Now, I might say, well, the first thing would be to make clear how you find salvation. But in his context, know what he's saying. That things had become so much about man that the person coming into the church who was searching out for God could not find God there because it was so heaped in stuff in man and the worship of man and the glory of man. And so we've got to reform that worship setting so that people have a right experience, if you will, with God. So by stripping all that away, the priesthood being brought low, and now it's the Word of God to display who Christ is, without all that distraction, you can now make clear to people the way to be right with God. If you don't get rid of all that stuff, it's a confusing message. Who's on display here, the glory of man and his artistry and his position, or God? And you're confused while you're hearing a message that doesn't, doesn't match. So Calvin said, the way we worship a right, which he would later say is according to the Word of God, we have to have that right for people to properly understand the gospel. That's what he would say. They go together. And I would submit to you that's one of the ways we like to think about the importance of worship. Um, it sets us up right to meet God and to cling to Christ and to be people of that dependence who then lift their worship and become a strange people to others looking on. Because the world and even churches today are really about celebrities. They're really about manifesting themselves in many respects. And we are too in ways we don't even know because we're so filled with ourselves. But to the best of our abilities, we strip those things away. and We concentrate, what does the Bible give us as the basics for what we should be thinking concerning worship? That helps us devise them. Now, rest easy. I'm not going to go on a thing about style here. I truly believe there are different ways a church can style its worship. I'm only saying that they have to start with the glory of God as their guidepost. It can't be what would get more people in, what will make people more comfortable, what will comfort people more, what will resonate with them, what will get them ready. That is not what we're, that's worshiping man. We ask, what would God be most glorified by? And then we can have our discussions among Christians about what that looks like. But at least then we're going back to the lens of, does this thing or element we do serve the purpose of lifting our gaze heavenward to the one who deserves all our worship and adoration? It's not what can we get out of worship, but what will God get out of it by way of the manifestation of his glory? So I would submit to you these principles that I have pointed out on your outline as what we would say are the biblical basics for the way our worship should look or should be practiced. This will give you, especially if you're a newcomer, an idea about why we do what we do. Um, one of my biggest pet peeves, and if you just want to mess with me, you can say it and, and you'll, you'll get a, a reaction. We're not a traditional church. We are not old-fashioned. Now, your grandma might have done this, but that's only because she was right, not because it's a traditional thing. We're not traditional. We are following principles, and then we search out elements to fill those things, and there are some timeless things that have come through time because they've been tested and have a certain safety to them that makes sense for the people of God, and so we then use them, and they tend to resonate with the ages before us. Uh, that, that's what it is. It's a thought process that comes through a biblical lens. Now, I'm not saying that doing everything like this is the only biblical way. Certainly, the choice of an instrument or how we stand or sit or whatever, those things are unique to the environment. It has to do with how they, they flow together. It's not, I have no problem with a lot of the modern songs, although I will say that we've had 2,000 years of hymnody. It makes sense to me that we would not jettison all of that because one Hillsong person comes up with a hymn that ends up being heretical like two weeks later when you actually read it. So we should think about something, let it, let it have time to marinate with people who are studying it and thinking about it and concerning it, and then present it to the people of God, the redeemed of God, who will present it to God. It's not for them. So would we not want to be careful about that? But that doesn't mean that this age can't come up with some good stuff. We should make it to him a new song, for sure. But we're still asking ourselves some guiding questions, and the lens that we can use are some of these principles. First of all, I want you to see that it has to be a God-centered worship. I've already begun explaining that. Secondly, though, another element, it must be Christ-focused. 
Christ is the way in which we have access to the Father. That opens up our ability to praise Him when we get our acceptance through Christ. So it's Christ-focused. But also, it's Holy Spirit-empowered. You cannot worship God unless the Spirit aids you in worshiping. You and your person, your natural person, do not want to worship God. You rebel against that in your life. You want your life to be about you. That's what I want in my natural state. But by the Holy Spirit, we see things right and real, the way they ought to be viewed. So we need the Holy Spirit to empower our worship. Also, two things that come from this that are benefits to us because of the way God has designed it. Worship should be purpose-giving. This should set a pattern or a model for your way of thinking for the rest of the week. And then finally, it's faith-building. All of us have weak faith on our own. Well, we all have weak faith, but it's saving faith because it's in Christ. But then the Lord gives us means to build that faith up in your our times of corporate worship especially, this is true of other worship um, experiences you have on your own with your family, with the Lord, just you and the Lord and the scriptures. But as the church is concerned, this is a faith-building exercise we go through because the elements the Lord has given in this worship service that are specially designed to make you trust Christ more. It's not something I do. It's not something you can do. It's what he does in this context by his ordination. First, our worship is to be God-centered. I've started to mention this already, but I'll accent a few more points regarding it. God-centeredness is the principle that should drive how we put together a worship service. I am not saying you don't care at all about the people who are coming in. Uh, Obviously, we make concessions in various ways, the time we meet, the language we speak in. Uh, We do all sorts of things that are concessions to people so where they are. But fundamentally, the thing that drives us is not a question about what people want, but what has God in his word said that he wants? Because here's the thing. People, redeemed people especially, but even unredeemed need this, whether they know it or not. They need a picture of God on earth so they can take their eyes off of everything around them and recognize that he is the high and mighty one lifted up who has reached down to save us. They have to have a sense of his transcendence and a sense of his authority in speaking the words of the gospel. It's not a time where I'm trying to softly convince you to think along with me. This is a declaration time about what's true and what to do. And this is the the God-centeredness that helps us craft the approach we take, and it's crucial. I think one of the big things that divides believers, genuine believers today, is a bit of a, a misfocus here. If we're starting always with outreach as the idea of our worship service, you're not starting at the right place. Outreach will flow from a church who has a high view of God. If, here, put it this way, honestly. If a church does not exhibit outreach in its membership or in its missions, they don't have a high church of God no matter how high their steeple is. It, so it's not just the form of worship. It's, it's the mindset behind it. That's why I want you to dig into what I'm saying here, the scriptural principles behind it, so what you don't come away with is a smug view of our worship. Because that's the worst thing you could do. That's the opposite of the effect it's supposed to have. If you come away thinking, boy, I'm glad we're not like the church next door, then shame on us. That is not the point. You should be so humbled by what you've discovered here that you just wish everybody would bow at the feet of Christ, but you're more worried about where we are as a family. Are we thinking that way about Christ? Are we elevating him, and is our worship doing that? Our worship is not a statement of everyone else is doing something wrong. Our worship is a statement of we believe the Bible, and we think that the Scripture has given us the guidance we need, and we're going to do it really imperfectly because we're not that good at any of it, even if we think we are. But Lord, help us because we want you to be magnified. That's what we're asking for. That demeanor will, will make us a much different place, and our effectiveness for outreach will actually skyrocket even if we don't look as relevant as everybody else. Psalm 95, 6 and 7, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The centrality of the worship of God is the hallmark of the redeemed. If you think about Abel, his first outward action was a sacrifice to God. Noah's first act after the ark was coming to dry land and offering a sacrifice to God. The worship of God by the patriarchs was prompted by their thankfulness for God's provisions. The revelation or what we learn from the tabernacle, the sacrificial system under Moses, and eventually the temple, it's a picture of the centrality of the worship of God among the people of God. The vision of Isaiah was the holy and lifted up, praiseworthy God. 
the connection between a humble, secure people and the worship of God through biblical history is apparent. The hallmark of biblical worship is profoundly God-centered. Terry Johnson, the pastor of the Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, was crucial in the beginnings of our church by giving seed money to the founding pastor for the first two years to help start Redeemer. In fact, this building um, is some tribute in that regard with the same ellipse in the four pillars that they have in Savannah, Georgia. Terry Johnson said, what is worship that is not centered on God? Worship that is centered on something other than God is not worship. We answer simply, it may be a religious gathering, it may be exciting, it may be informative, but it is not by definition worship. Among the primary virtues of the Reformed worship is God-centeredness. Its structure and content leave no ambiguity about what the people of God have gathered to do, offer publicly to God their sacrifice of prayer, praise. Robert Rayburn wrote, it's, it is fundamental that we recognize that all true Christian worship must be theocentric. The primary motion and focus of worship is Godward. So worship is centered around the praise of God and who he is, the adoration of God, who is the magnificent one with these attributes that are hard, hard to even comprehend. They're so great. The worship of God has to do with his worthiness to receive our praise. The worship of God is not about our preferences, our needs, our tastes, our desires, our musicians, our pastors, or our people, or our buildings. The worship of God is to be centered around the preferences of God and not the preferences of man. Worship is not about what we get out of it, but what God gets out of it and his glory and how it's shown forth. Um, If you do want to tell people what kind of church Redeemer is, you can either say it's a confessional church, and you might have to explain a bunch else, or you could say we're an ordinary means of grace church, and I'll explain that in a moment, because people will want to ask what's it like. And a lot of people ask me, where do you go to church, or, and I'll say I go to Redeemer, and they'll say, oh, Redeemer, and I know they're talking about the cool one, you know, the cool Redeemer. That, no, I'm, it's not the one you're thinking of, probably, uh, because I just I probably figure that's the one they're talking about, because how popular are we, right? Um, so we're an ordinary means of grace, let me try to explain, and we'll get there. But you could say we're confessional. Don't say traditional. Please don't say, will you raise your right hand and say, I will never say. We're not traditional. I mean, that's not the reason. It just, that not, no term drives me. Anyways, we're confessional. And our confession of faith gives us some direction that I think will help us. The confession of faith says, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. That's the first section on the confession's direct, directions for worship. Now listen to what it says in light of all that. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will, the scriptures, that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Our worship is to be God-centered. But our worship is also to be Christ-focused. Christ-focused. We pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we turn to Revelation 5. Revelation 5 is this picture of heavenly worship. And listen to what it says. And when he had taken up the scroll, who's he? The Lamb of God, Christ. When he had taken up the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take up the scroll. Worthy are you, Christ. And open its seals. The one who can open up the scroll has access to God. And he's the only one that can do it. So our worship is Christ-focused because he's the one that can take up the scroll. We can't. Christ has. And in Christ, we stand with him before the Father. And so it's Christ-focused. But continuing. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbers of myriads upon myriads, and they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in in them say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Our approach comes to God through the person and the work of Christ. Jesus, by his perfect work, has granted us access to God to worship. The Lamb of God, worthy to take up the scroll and open it. The one who ransomed us, the one who redeemed us. Our worship is Christ-focused. We come boldly to the throne of grace for only one reason. Because we come in Christ. That's why we come boldly. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the Ephesians, he said, and he came and preached, talking about Christ. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are a Christ-focused, worshiping community. Our confession, once again, captures Christ so well. And we think of this in the context of our Christ-focusedness. To all those for whom Christ has purchased redemption... He does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, that redemption we have. Making intercession for them, revealing unto them, and in, in and by the word, the mysteries of salvation. Effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey. And governing their hearts by his word and spirit. Overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom. In such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and searchable dispensation. We are Christ-focused in our worship, but we are also in need of aid. We must be Holy Spirit-empowered. We have to depend upon the Spirit. We have no hope of worship or understanding anything I'm even saying apart from the, wor- the Holy Spirit open our eyes. The Holy Spirit draws you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives you the desire to worship God. The Holy Spirit is the helper. When you read the Gospel of John, Jesus slowly reveals how the Helper, when he comes, will assist the people of God. And I want you to hear this in particular. We are a Holy Spirit-empowered people. John 4, 23, the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Later in John 15, Jesus says, when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He's talking to his disciples, extending to the day that we will believe because of the Spirit's witness about Christ. Where? In the Scripture and in our hearts, testifying that it's true. That's why you believe it, because the Spirit's done that. In John 16, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He would ascend into heaven and then send his spirit to effectually multiply his witness. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all, all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. We have a Holy Spirit-empowered worship. How do you know it's Holy Spirit-empowered? Do you agree with what I'm saying with regard to the Scripture's call to worship, to what it says about Jesus, to what it says about God's call to us? If you do, that's because the Holy Spirit's empowered you to. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you're naturally spiritually sensitive on your own. It's because the Holy Spirit gave you that sensitivity, gave you that understanding, allowed you to comprehend this. Thoroughly Spirit-empowered. The Holy Spirit gives us faith in Christ to begin with. In 1 Corinthians, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates us and sanctifies us in Titus 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding of his word. In 1 Corinthians 2, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray. I could go on and on and on with all the Holy Spirit does. And I know a rap we get a little bit because we're a little bit on the conservative side as Presbyterians is that we don't understand the Holy Spirit. I would say, no, we really do. We really do. We see the role of the Holy Spirit to be from the Father and from the Son to do what the Father and the Son say in His Word, in its directive, and we couldn't do any of it without the Holy Spirit. And just because we don't say it all the time does not mean that we don't understand. Underliedly, none of it happens apart from the Spirit. It's all the Holy Spirit's work. It's all, that's why, by the way, it's all to God's praise. Even when we get ourselves to church, that's the Holy Spirit. He kept your heart beating through the night so you can get here today. There's really no part of what we have in our life that we can't point and say, glory be to you, God, you have done this. By now, you've probably seen that our worship is triune. That is, we acknowledge the Trinity in every aspect of our worship. By the way, what we attempt to do in the order of liturgy is this. We try to have it to be thoroughly Trinitarian because our God is a Trinity. And so, you have the doxology, you have the Gloria Patri, and sometimes the last hymn of dismissal, I try to have um, it be Trinitarian. Not always, but oftentimes I try to do that. The reason why we sing hymns, by the way, is not because uh, we're old fuddy-duddies or your grandma did it. Uh, I'm not glad if your grandma did. No knocks on grandmas who like this, by the way. I hope to be a grandpa someday that's referred to that way. But the point is, the hymns have been tested, and many of them are very thoroughly Trinitarian. One of my raps about modern music. And by the way, if you check my, my iTunes, I've got, I've listened to all the new stuff. I enjoy listening to new songs. I don't think they're immediately ready to be put into the worship service where the redeemed of God are going to be in the presence of the holy living God before they've been tested. The same thing I would do for my sermon or any prayer. I'm not just going to put a 22-year-old worship leader's song that week up. The saying, they need a little bit of work before that happens. Maybe after some years of checking it and tweaking it and getting to the place where it'd be ready. But I listen to those songs but the hymns in your hymnal have been tested. And you'll know I don't have a sing every one of them, and there's a reason for that. I'll let you guess. But they need to be Trinitarian at some level, because that's who God is. If we're going to sing to God, let's sing accurately about him. They're balanced because we go through these phases in the evangelical church where we're really on the Holy Spirit for a while. Now we're really on the Son. Now we're really on the Father. Let's be about the Godhead. And so that's what we have in our hymnody. And we often sing all the verses, because if you take one or two out, you might take one of the persons of the Trinity out, and that's a problem. So these things are thought through over time, and we go to that as a, as a safe resource for the people of God. And as the elders of the church, if we're going to put it before the people of God, we know we answer to God for this. So we're not going to have you sing words that we have not checked out first or are confident with. These are some of the reasons. But it's Trinitarian, to my point, and you'll see this throughout uh, the order of worship, to give us a thoroughgoing understanding of who our God is. Even the prayers we pray, we try to make sure we're giving right reference to who God actually is as he reveals himself in his word. Now, we've seen a few aspects of what our worship is to be like, God-centered, Christ-focused, and Holy Spirit-empowered. The final two are really benefits to us that come from fo- uh, worshiping the way God would call us to worship. Now, I want to be careful when I say it that way because I don't want to promote smugness or this idea of superiority. Uh, is, that's probably my biggest fear for us is that we would become arrogant about anything because there's nothing we can be arrogant about. It's foolish, and it's almost it's a bit of a misunderstanding of the, the fullness of what the gospel calls us to if we get that way. But to understand it aright, we try to pursue what the Bible says and what we do in our worship. We do our best to do this. And so in so far as we're aiming at that, our worship will be purpose-giving. So we'll gain something you don't necessarily even recognize when you're in the process of worshiping. But it sets a pace for your life when you go about this order that we follow every week. And I want you to think of the order and follow with me. So the order for worship is we come in with a certain amount of reverence to start to think and concentrate on the Lord. We have the narthex. Have all sorts of fun and great fellowship with your 
fellow believers. We want fellowship to be encouraged. But the design of the building was actually on purpose to make it smaller when you walk in because now I'm walking, oh, it's different now. I'm in the narthex, huge ceilings, have fun with your friends, drink your coffee. Then you get into the little area and you're like, whoa, it's different. It's quieter when you get here. Come in a little early and the doors open and you, you're supposed to get a certain sense of, whoa, the, 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 even the architecture helps you think in terms of some element of loftiness, right? You sit down and you start to contemplate what you're here for. And we open with a call to worship. The, the choir prepares us for that by some, put, giving us some words to think about. Then we are called to worship. We sing, usually the opening song is about God the Father and his, in these aspects of his attributes that are pray, some, or a psalm that's set the same way. Like the song we sang this morning, it's a psalm set to music. Then after that, we've had this time of meeting God. We have to confess our sins because we realize how bad off we are in front of this true and living God. But we also know we're saved in Christ and we receive the words of assurance once again. And from that place, we sing. Usually the second song usually is about Christ and something he's what he's accomplished for us. Then we can go out and pass the peace. And that's not an intermission. That's the time to say, hey, we understand we're now right with God so we can be right with each other in a deep way, not just a superficial way. And we pass the peace. And then one of our elders comes and prays for the flock because now we're rightly focused and we ask God who tells us to come to him with our desires for those things according to his will. And an elder leads us in a very thoughtful prayer that they put together over some time because they understand the importance of who they're leading to the throne of grace. And then from that moment, we are able to do what we all want to do at that point is give to support all of this. We give to see the glory of God shown. And we have to. We can't do without that. But praise be to God, he's given us so much and it's all his anyways. So then we just are able, as a right response to everything I just said, to give. And we do that by an offering. Then we're ready to sit down and listen to what the word has to say to us. And it's not what the pastor has to say to us. And it's not what his pet topic is. It's what the Bible says, and it means preaching the word. It doesn't mean preaching about the word or just preaching a sermon, and those things can be done because, frankly, what I'm doing right now is preaching a sermon. I only do this two or three times a year because it has too much of me in it. Normally, what we want to do is open up the Bible and say the message of the text is a message of the sermon because that's what the people of God say God needs, and that's what God says to give them. That's what preaching the word means. Not preaching of the word, technically. It's preaching the word. An expositional sermon is simply this. The message of the text is the message of the sermon. It's not just going book to book. But that's the food we eat. And then we get more food after that because we go to the table. And we eat there again and are reminded of the finished work of Christ for us. And then we are blessed to go forward with our week. What I just described should set the pace of your life. That's, the whole, that's your life in a nutshell to some degree. You came to know who God was, you knew you were a sinner, you had to rely upon Christ, you give praise to God for this, and then you want to know more of Christ, so teach me more. Lord, I need strength, so he gives you his table, and now I go from this place. When we are careful to follow God's direction, our worship will be purpose-giving. When you come in every Sunday, I hope you reset for the week. Um, We're in the phase of life where our kids are starting to grow up and go to college, and they're not in the home anymore. They're not completely out of the household, but they're not at home anymore. And so I look at the calendar, and coming up here pretty quick, we have a couple, an overlap where my oldest son and my, young, uh, my, my middle son will be back from their respective colleges in two sides of the country. And for, you know, a few times a year anymore, we'll have all of us in the house. And I know that God has them in those places, and they're growing into the men they're going to be with new inputs and in, in people in their lives, and that's wonderful. We prayed for this. But it feels like detached. It's a little sad to me because they're not part of the house anymore. And it's like we need this regrounding from time to time. Um, Not to change what they've learned because those things that God has given them to learn are good things. And they need to be learned apart from us. Uh, But when they do come together, there's a regrounding that happens when we're together as a family. And there's usually an hour or two where it's really peaceful. Then stuff starts to break and wrestling matches happen and the food disappears from the fridge. But before that happens... There's this moment of regrounding where we're a family again. And we just think back at fun stuff. And Sherry has all these photo albums. And the boys will inevitably, while they made fun of her for doing them at the time, they now pick them up and want to look back to the pictures when they were four or when they were six. And many of you show up in the pictures. And you looked a lot younger in those pictures. And they note it often. And it's a wonderful regrounding. And then they go back to their life. But they reground. They go back to their life. And they reground. And they remember that never leaves who they are. But they do become other people. Every time you come to church, you come to worship, not to church. And when you come to worship, you're regrounded. 
God's making you into a, a different person. He's sanctifying you. But he takes this place of commonness that you're used to, and it's going to be generally the same all the time in the right ways, and you're going to be regrounded again to go forward into the week ahead of you. And as the world around us gets more difficult, it's even more important that the church be more steadfast in its consistency about who we are and what we do. We'll need this, and you'll need it more than you ever imagined if things do get as bad as they could get on a cultural level and the pressures on the church come. Finally, I want you to note that worship directed by God is faith-building. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, we have an early description of Christians gathering, and it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the scriptures, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread and the prayers. When we worship God as God directs, there will be a strengthening effect that we realize. And I already mentioned a little bit of it by talking about how it gives us purpose and sets our week and our life in in order. But there's something more in a micro level that happens every Lord's Day as we come together. God has designed worship for his glory, but also for our good by design. When we are properly aligned about who God is and who we are, we are able then to receive strength from the only one who can give it, that's God. The progress of our service every Lord's Day illustrates, as I already mentioned, how this flows. But there are elements that are part of the worship service by God's direction that are meant to build your faith. And these elements are very simply put, and this is what I mean when you say Redeemer is an ordinary means of grace church. The means of grace are the tools that God uses to make you trust Jesus more. They're the means of grace, as it's called in our confession. And those means are the Word of God, and from the Word of God we learn the other two, sacraments and prayer. Just three simple things. For all the methods people try to come up with, for all the strategies, really the way I judge a church anymore is do they have the means of grace dispensed to the people on a regular basis? Are they true to the Word of God preached? Do they dispense of the sacraments in a way that honors God according to His Word? And are they a people who are prayerful? Are they praying throughout their worship formally? And are they, is the church promoting everybody be about prayer on a regular basis? Because these are the actual means God says you need to grow. It's not like a new Christian movie that's going to do it or a new Christian song that's going to do it as such. It's the word, it's the sacraments, and it's prayer. That's how a church is effective. No matter what its size is, that's an effective church. You can have a tiny church that's really potent spiritually if it's doing these things. First, the word. In our confession, it says the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscible hearing of the word, in obedience unto God, with understanding, faith and reverence, singing of psalms with great grace in the heart. These are means of God's growing your faith. The sacraments. The due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Ordinary meaning common, normal, they should be happening everywhere. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is God's commitment to save a people for himself by Christ. The sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. As also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world. I once heard a pastor tell me, a godly man who loved the Lord, uh, I just would differ with his angle. He, I said, why don't you do the Lord's Supper every week? Just, just chat. You know, we have a lot of newcomers, and I'm afraid that might make them uneasy. No, that's why you do it. It's supposed to sh- put a difference between those who are in Christ and out of Christ. But you re- Presbyterians don't have altar calls. Yes, we do. It's called communion. Every week we say those who trust in Christ come to the table. If you don't trust in Christ, don't take the table, because you got to know that you're not in Christ, and guess what that means? It's meant to draw that distinction as people come in, not to alienate them, but to give them a confrontation with the reality that they need Christ. And let me tell you, if they don't care about Christ or think they don't need it, they're not bothered by not taking it. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, and this is a great comfort to me, neither does the efficacy of the sacrament depend on the piety or the holiness or intention of him that does administer it. And praise God for everybody here. For the, the, you are not dependent on mine or the elder's holiness for this stuff to be effective. In fact, we could be totally lame. And we are to some degree. 
and you still might benefit if it's really the word that went forward. Paul one time kind of lamented the fact that these people, they were, they were complete charlatans, but they were actually teaching the Bible, and God was giving fruit to the teaching of it. And he just couldn't understand how this could be, and he realized that even the word of God is so powerful that it can overcome the impiety of the one preaching it or administering the sacraments. Now, we don't stand for that. We have standards for it, and we try to hold accountable those who are in those roles, but recognize the potency is wrapped up in the words of institution and the, the, the thing itself work with the Holy Spirit, not the person. The efficacy of the sacrament depend upon the pi- does not depend on the piety or the intention of him that doth administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with the precept authorizing the use thereof a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. Prayer. Prayer is that access we have to God to bring our concerns to Him, our praise to Him, our love to Him, all of it to Him. We don't change God's mind in prayer, but we find our wills to be aligned with His will as we go to Him through the Word, according to what the Word says in principle, and we pray. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one special part of religious worship, so our confession says, is by God required of all men, and that it may be accepted. It is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal in a, new tongue, in a tongue that's known. The Holy Spirit gives us faith to lay hold of Jesus for salvation. Then we are given tools to strengthen that faith. So our times of worship serve to build our faith through these main God-ordained rules, very simp- or tools. Very simply, you may have a thin thread of faith that links you to Jesus, but Jesus is so powerful, that's all that's necessary for you to be saved. But God has given you means to grow the thread into a thick rope and into a chain over the course of your life. And the means of grace are the Bible, the sacraments, and prayer. And in our worship service, as we receive those, our worship is faith-building. You will be stronger having received those means of grace than you were before. It was actually Dostoevsky who said, the one essential condition of human existence is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. If men are deprived of the infinitely great, they will not go on living and will die of despair. The infinite and the eternal are as essential for man as the little planet on which he dwells. The word worship comes from an old Welsh word that means worth-ship. Worth meaning worthy and ship meaning a condition of something. The very word denotes that the object of worship is worthy of that adoration. The Bible uses several phrases or terms to exalt, to glorify, to magnify, to extol, to confess, to adore, to bless, to bow, to serve, to praise, to shine. Worship, biblically speaking, is to acknowledge and express and declare the glory and worth of God. Worship is our central calling as a church. Let us pray. Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Please, O Lord, grant to us a more pure devotion to you that expresses itself in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.